This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Good morning. It's Saturday morning. Welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted to welcome Professor Steve Hankey, a leading world expert on currency boards measuring and stopping hyperinflation, privatization, currency and commodity trading, water resources, economics, and other key topics. Professor Steve Hankey is Professor of Applied Economics and Founder and Co-Director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. As a senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, he led a team of economists in rewriting the federal government's principles and guidelines for water and land-related resources implementation studies. In addition, he was responsible for designing President Ronald Reagan's major privatization initiatives. Dr. Heinke has also held senior appointments in governments of many other countries, including Albania, Kazakhstan, the United Arab Emirates, and Yugoslavia. He played an important role in establishing new currency regimes in Argentina, Estonia, Bulgaria, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Ecuador, Lithuania, and Montenegro. And on this note, we welcome Professor Steve Hankey. A good morning to you, sir, and welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome, Professor Hankey. Well, thank you, Natasha and Joel. Good to be with you again. Thank you so much for joining us again. Dr. Hanke, since we spoke to you in March this year, U.S. annual inflation jumped from 7.9% to 8.6%. At both times, the inflation was at the highest level in 40 years, and it is not showing any signs of slowing down. And for more than a year, you rightfully argued that this inflation is not transitory, but persistent, and you're projecting that it would last through 2023 and 2024. Uh, Dr. Henke, what would your message be to the Biden administration, which is blaming supply chain disruptions due to China's coronavirus and now the war in Ukraine for America's inflation? Well, the administration simply is pointing the finger at anybody but themselves. They're not responsible for anything that's going bad. All, all these things that you itemized or are foreign. They have nothing to do with the United States. The Federal Reserve, by the way, with Chairman Powell, is, is taking the same position. We, we didn't do it. The guy behind the tree did it. But in fact, it's, it's all centered on the Federal Reserve. And, and it centers on the Federal Reserve because they're the ones who ultimately pull a trigger and create money. And it is money and the expansion of the money supply that ultimately creates inflation. So what have we done since COVID and 
February of 2020, we've increased the money supply measured by M2 by over $6 trillion. And this is incredible because the economy was actually going down <laughs> as a result of the lockdowns and, and COVID when it started. So we, didn't, we, we really needed almost no money increase or small money increase. Instead, we've had this gigantic explosion of the money supply. And with that always comes inflation. So that's why we have inflation. That's why it's hanging around. And it will continue to hang around for sure through 2023 and perhaps going into 2024. But there's just no way around it because that excess money is still in the system. It's still leaking out into inflation. Mm -hmm. The critical thing now is what the Federal Reserve seems to be doing, and that is pivoting away from this massive increase in the money supply towards trying to tighten up to fight inflation. And since they really aren't paying any attention to the money supply itself, but interest rates, they think interest rates by increasing the interest rates, that's going to solve the problem. But if you look at the money supply, the last two months of readings, and we just got a, a, the last reading yesterday, they've, they've been dropping like a stone. And if this continues for another couple of months, we are going to have a recession, which will start late this year or early next year. The Federal Reserve really does not know what it's doing. They, they never anticipated that they were a problem and they were going to cause inflation by this huge increase in the money supply. They never forecasted inflation. They have over 685 economists working at the Federal Reserve, and there wasn't one who'd forecast anything close to what we have. They, they didn't think we were going to have a problem. So we're, we're trusting them to solve the problem that they never figured out they were the source of the problem of. They never forecasted it or anything. No, I think they're flying blind and they're flying blind because they're not focusing on what we call a quantity theory of money. You, you have to have a theory behind any story. What's, what's the foundation of the story? What's it all about? And it's all about the quantity theory of money, which, which in short says inflation follows the course of the money supply. If the money supply is going up very sharply, inflation will go up. If the money supply is going down very sharply, inflation will, will be going down. And in order to rein in inflation, the Federal Reserve raised interest rate by 0.75% in its last meeting in June, uh, which is the most aggressive rate hike since 1994. Uh, currently, the Fed funds rate is in a range between 1.5% and 1.75%. And all Fed officials anticipate that the Fed will raise rates to at least 3% this year. And majority of them expects Fed to raise the rate to 3.4% by the end of the year. With Fed funds rate going up, there is less incentive for individuals and businesses to take out loans for consumption and investments, which was Fed's original intent to slow down the economy, to slow down consumer and business spending. And we also have to point out that the cost of servicing of $30 trillion government debt is also going up. Uh, Dr. Henke, as you mentioned, 
knowing that inflation is a monetary phenomenon and that it could have been prevented in the first place, how could the inflation be reined in at this stage without using remedies that can cause recession, such as with the Fed raising interest rate? Well, this, this is a, a, a difficult tightrope to, to walk. If Once you create inflation and have it in the system, it's, it's difficult to wring it out without, without having a recession. And it's particularly difficult if you're flying an airplane and, and don't have an altimeter in it with a money supply on the altimeter. You, you really have a big problem. That's the problem of the Fed. They're really grasping at straws. And I think given the, the last two months worth of data on the money supply dropping as rapidly as it already has, that they will end up overdoing things without even knowing they're overdoing things. And that's why I think there's a, about a 70% chance that we will have a recession. And I think it will probably start late this year or early next year. Professor Hankey, on imposing sanctions, you have stated that sanctions are immoral, ineffective, and unfortunately politically convenient. You've mentioned that sanctions do not change the behavior of the targeted enemy. And Professor Hankey, when asked about sanctions, you relayed this statement published recently in the Asia Times, I quote, Like all sanctions, those being imposed on Russia are economic weapons that are being deployed in what is, in fact, an undeclared war against Russia. And like all sanctions, they have proved to be totally ineffective in accomplishing their stated goal of changing Russia's behavior, unquote. Also in Time Magazine earlier this year, you said, I quote, there are always workarounds, meaning sanctions won't stop the rich from getting money in or out of the country. And this past week, a report from The Guardian stated that countries such as Croatia, Netherlands, and Greece were violating the very sanctions that they imposed through the EU or European Union by receiving crude oil from Russian tankers. These ports are receiving Russian crude oil. And at a business summit, Putin told the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, that Russian oil supplies to China and India are growing noticeably. Professor Hankey, from your vantage point and the extensive work that you have done in history's lessons, what are some of the empirical observations that we ought to look at on this topic of applying sanctions? Does it work or not? Well, they, they categorically do not work. There's a lot of scholarly literature on this subject of sanctions. They simply do not work. And most politicians have never expressed any interest in looking at the scholarly literature. So we, we have piles of evidence and books and everything else on the subject. Everyone just ignores it and marches ahead blindly. This is a little bit like the Fed flying blind. <laughs> you have the politicians flying blind with sanctions. They've never stopped a war. They've ne almost never changed the behavior of the targeted country or individuals that have been sanctioned. So if you look at the kind of unintended consequences, there are so many. What, what are we getting with the sanctions? We're getting very high gasoline prices, very high oil prices, for one thing as well as grain prices and, and, and food prices. But let's just take the oil. That's a, that's a big export of Russia, and the price of oil is going up, and Russia is figuring out how to 
do workarounds, that, that is get around the sanctions. They export their oil at a very high price. As a result, their what they call a current account, their trade account is in a massive surplus, a huge surplus. It's over tripled in the last five months. And that, of course, supports the ruble. And the ruble is clearly the strongest currency in the world right now. The ruble is stronger than it's been in the last seven years. It's increased in value since the Russian invasion in Ukraine by about 45% against the dollar. So it's, it's way stronger now than it was before Russia ever engaged in, in, in warfare activities in Ukraine. So that's the unintended consequences. The, the best example I have of this, by the way, is something I call the Afghan effect. And people can understand the Afghan effect. And, and this is a sanctions type of thing. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And, and when they did, Brzezinski was the head of the White House National Security. He advised President then Jimmy Carter that we should ban the export of grain from the United States to the Soviet Union to punish them for this invasion. So what did the Soviets do? The Soviets turned around, this is a workaround, they went to Argentina, they got a good deal for all the grain they wanted at a very good price. And of course, what happened to the American farmers? They, they, they were prohibited from selling grain to the Soviet Union. So they were very upset about it. It was a bad deal for American farmers. The Soviets were not injured because they got a substitute from Argentina. It was a great deal for who was leading Argentina at the time, the military junta. The enemies of the United States, the junta, benefited. They had a huge boom in Argentina. It was great for Argentina. The next election, the came around, and of course, Carter lost the election. What state has the first primary? Iowa. Iowa's a farm state. The Iowa farmers were mad as hell because they couldn't sell their corn and soybeans to the Soviet Union, who they had contracts with, by the way. They had to break the contract. So, so that's, that's how the Afghan effect worked. You have something happening in a little place that people hardly at the time even knew where it was located, and it starts rippling all over the world. It created a, a very bad deal in the Midwest for U.S. farmers and a tremendous deal in Argentina. Argentina, by the way, just had a tremendous boom at that time. And the boom, of course, supported a government who the U.S. wasn't very friendly to. So that's, that's Brzezinski in action. So the Brzezinski idea is exactly the same thing we're using today. It's an old Brzezinski playbook thing. It's a complete uh, an utter nonsensical thing, but they just keep doubling down on it. Every time the president comes out, he's doubling down. Every, every time any, any of the leaders from the EU are coming out, whether or, or great, great Britain is one of the worst, Johnson, Johnson, the prime minister, is, is terrible on this. Both Johnson and Biden will, will pay the political cost, as well as the government in, in Germany. All these governments, look, look at what happened with the last election in France. Macron 
got clobbered. You had the extremes on the right and the left picked up a huge number of seats in Parliament in, in France. That's all a sanctions thing because people are fed up with paying a lot for food, a lot for gasoline, a lot for oil, and, and they get the connection. They, they, they know this isn't a Putin price hike, it's a Biden price hike. Professor Henke, another area where we were flying blindly were lockdowns during COVID. And you were one of the co-authors of John Hopkins' lockdown study, uh, together with Jonas Herbie and Lars Jonang, titled A Literature Review and Meta-Analysis of the Effects of Lockdowns on COVID-19 Mortality. And you found out that lockdowns in the spring of 2020 resulted in approximately 23,000 avoided deaths in Europe and 16,000 avoided deaths in the United States. And you put those numbers into context, comparing them to flu deaths. And you say that there are approximately 72,000 flu deaths in Europe and 38,000 flu deaths in the United States each year. In short, we found that lockdowns had little to no effect on COVID-19 mortality. Uh, Dr. Henke, could you kindly share with us your findings, lessons learned, and reactions of various stakeholders to the findings of your study? Natasha, you've summarized the the results. Uh, The the results are that the lockdowns have very tiny effect on on anything in the health sphere in terms of mortality, people dying. That's what you care about. You care, is somebody going to be alive or are they going to die? Well, the lockdowns didn't prevent many deaths. We, we have many, many more deaths in a normal flu season from flu than the number of deaths prevented by lockdowns. So that's the health side of the thing. That's the, shall we say, the benefit side of the thing, or lives saved, a very, very tiny uh, effect. But the cost side are huge because you're shutting down the whole economy. You're shutting schools down. You know you get a, a big hit in, in GDP, but you, you also get a, a, a huge hit on you know psychological aspects with children learning. Learning has been retarded tremendously by lockdowns and children not being able to go to school. So there are just all kinds of ripple effects that, that actually we're starting to study right now. The cost side of the picture and the costs are, are enormous, and clearly the benefits are very tiny. So it, it's completely ill advised to be locking down. It's an insane policy. The benefits are tiny and the costs are gigantic. So, in, in that kind of situation, what would you do? You wouldn't use a policy that had benefits that were tiny and costs that were enormous. So, the reaction has been interesting because we have the health profession in general, not, not all, but in general, they, they produce models and the models indicate how many lives would be saved, for example, by locking down. And they get, they get huge numbers. I mean, they, they're up in the, we're talking about saving lives, a few thousand lives, That's what we actually know. We measured it in the field. That's what the literature tells us. But these models, it's kind of garbage in and garbage out. The garbage out, you get, for example, in the United States, instead of having that tiny little number of death saves, the prediction was that 1.7 million would be saved. 
so it's not even in the same planet. And this is what the politicians run with. They run with these epidemiological models that spin out fantasy numbers. And the reason they do that is because of fear. And you get a big number like that, and that, that creates a lot of fear. And the politicians love to grab on to fear because they can then use fear to scare the pants off of everybody and say, look, we're, we're going to do a lockdown because if we don't, millions of people are going to die. There are going to be people lying all over the streets in New York and you name it, Baltimore, Washington and whatnot. So that's why those models are attractive to politicians, because anytime a politician can impose fear, the politician can usually get authority and, and, and wield authority and force people to do things Absolutely. that maybe they, maybe they don't want to do, by the way. By the way, one thing with, the, with, the, with these pandemics that, that's, that is interesting, the one reason the models are ne never are right is they assume people don't change their behavior once the pandemic starts. This is nonsense. If you look at the flu, the great Spanish flu in the United States in 1917, that hit pretty hard in New York. You had a lot of people die. So in those days, it went out on the wire services. A lot of people are dying in New York from the Spanish flu. It gets in the newspapers in Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, and so forth. And as that news went from the East Coast to the West, what do people do out in Denver? They say, oh, I better be careful. I don't want to get that Spanish flu. I better, I better not be getting in big crowds. I better stay away from people. I better do this, that, and the other thing to, to mitigate the damage. And, of course, the death count out west, as you go, there was kind of a gradient, a lot of deaths in New York, and then a gradient going down, down, down as you went west, as the news filtered out into the into the hinterlands in the United States, in the West and in the South, they did they didn't have that many deaths because people aren't stupid. If, if you tell if you tell someone that stove is red hot, what do they do? You don't put your hand on the <laughs> don't touch it. You stay away you stay away from it. But the epidemiological models, they assume you put your hand on the thing and burn yourself. As we discussed about the unintended consequences of government intervention in the economy and the adverse impact of subsidies, it appears that the White House and global leaders are heading towards pouring more taxpayer funds into projects. And this past week, President Joe Biden met with his counterparts at the G7 meeting at a luxurious resort located in the Bavarian Alps in Germany. Group of Seven is an intergovernmental group, a political forum of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United Kingdom, and the United States with the European Union as a non-enumerated member. And the White House issued this statement, and I quote, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment will deliver some game-changing projects to close the infrastructure gap in developing countries, strengthen the global economy and supply chains, and advance U.S. national security, unquote. So now Biden is aiming to mobilize $600 billion by 2027. And some of the things that they're doing are 
It's tackling climate change and bolstering global energy, advancing gender equality, and you name it, they've got it. Professor Hankey, is this what American taxpayers and the hardworking, decent citizens are hoping for while they face inflation at home and a looming national debt of over $30 trillion? First of all, the resort that they're at is Schloss Elma, right very close to the Austrian border. Mrs. Hankey and I used to spend September's there. Uh, we haven't since COVID, but we know the layout very well. It's, it is a five-star resort. I, I'm certain they're having a wonderful time there. It's a, it's a fabulous place. That's point number one. They, they always take care of feathering their own nest and taking care of themselves. These politicians do. So that's point number one. Point number two is that infrastructure projects, and this is something, by the way, in the Reagan administration, I was in charge of infrastructure and those principles and standards you mentioned at the top of the show, that they are handbook for evaluating the benefits and cost of investing in infrastructure. And let me tell you, none of these projects pass the smell test. They all go way over budget. They, they are never delivered on time. They're always surrounded with massive corruption. This, this is an absolute Talk about waste, fraud, and abuse. This is this is really takes the cake. This is one reason I have something called the Encyclopedia of Economic Stupidity, and I can tell you that unfortunately, President Biden has entered in that encyclopedia, and this will be another yet another entry. The national infrastructure programs are bad enough. The international things are about a thousand times worse. They, they won't have a clue of what's going on or where the money is going. By the way, the money will go, because we've studied this, the money will go from ordinary middle-class taxpayers in the United States to rich oligarchs all over, and tycoons all over the world. That's where the money is going. And, the, and a lot of those tycoons and oligarchs are politicians. Absolutely. Professor Steve Hankey, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Your insights and clear principled solutions inspire us and challenge us uh, when we listen to your words. Professor Steve Hankey is Professor of Applied Economics and Founder and Co-Director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. We encourage our listeners to certainly uh, visit your search engines and read the excellent pieces, articles, and uh, interviews of Professor Steve Hankey. Once again, Professor Hankey, thank you so much for your continued leadership. Thank you so much, Professor Hankey. Well, thank you for inviting me. Good to see you both. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladensami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of 
Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. 